Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Um, so, good evening, friends and enemies. Yeah. Uh, my name is Benedetta Brevini, and uh, I'd like first to acknowledge that we are gathering on the lands of the Garigal people of the Aura Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Sydney is built. So, um, since the government is watching us, anyway, as you know, so this event is going to be live streamed, and you can see the details of it uh, behind in the screensaver. Um, so please follow us on Green Surveillance, um, hashtag Metadata Resist, and um, let them know that we know. So finally, I'd like to thank you, my great speakers here, so Paul Farrell, um, Julie Posetti and Gabor, um, Mari, is that the current yeah, pronunciation? Very good. For agreeing to be here with us tonight um, to debate what I think is the most pressing, and in my view, one of the most pressing problems of our time. So how can journalists perform the democratic role in regimes of ubiquitous digital surveillance imposed by new metadata laws? Are journalists adopting the instruments of digital security that are currently available to protect their work and their sources? So we have to debate this topic. We have Paul Farrell, a senior reporter for BuzzFeed Australia, senior in 27, sure. I think. I'll take that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and formerly worked as a lead reporter on the Guardian's Narrow Files. He co-founded the Detention Logs website and has produced stories and investigation for the ABC, Crikey, PBS, and New Matilda. So Paul has agreed to speak to us about his journey experience of resistance against surveillance and his chilling discovery of a police investigation into his asylum seeker stories. And then we have Julie, Julie Posetti, who is an award-winning Australian journalist and academic. She's currently head of the digital editorial capability at Fairfax Media and a journalism fellow at the University of Wollongong, where she is also a doctoral candidate. Julie will discuss with us the findings of a global UNESCO study of 2017, titled Protecting Journalism Sources in the Digital Age. And then Gabor Tatmari um, is currently the president of Crypto Australia, um, an advocate for privacy rights, open government, and free speech. Gabor will be talking to us about his experience in running crypto party events and hands-on workshops that bring private citizens and professionals together with digital security experts. So, it should, not, should not come as a, um, sorry. It should not come as a surprise that since the Snowden revelation in 2013, we've seen an increased implementation in the Western world of national security and data retention legislation. And this has happened, and I would like um, us to remember, um, despite on April 8, 2014, the Court of Justice of the European Union struck down the European Data Retention Directive, which required phone companies and ISPs to store metadata information for up to two years. Does this sound familiar to you? So the court held back then that the directive entailed serious, quote, interference with the rights to privacy and personal data protection of individuals guaranteed by the Charters of Fundamental Rights, and also failed to establish limits on access by competent national authorities. So this view has been reaffirmed on many occasions by the then former Rapporteur for Freedom of Speech and Information at the UN, Frank LaRue, that explained in a quote that national data retention laws are invasive, 
and costly, and threaten the rights to privacy and free expression. By compelling communication service providers to create large database of information, sometimes for years, mandatory data retention laws greatly increase the scope of state surveillance, thus, thus violating human rights. So, the new metadata laws have been met with great criticism in countries that are not Australia, and prompted debates in the Western world about the balance between security and privacy, accountability and secrecy. However, I don't think, and I think that all of you would agree, especially in the panels, that enough emphasis has been put on the severe impact of metadata laws on journalism practices and free speech. Journalists enjoy or should enjoy special legal protections precisely because they are integral, they are integral to the safeguarding of rights and transparency in a democracy. But these protections are becoming ineffective in light of metadata laws. For this reason, we are here tonight to debate the extent to which journalists around the world and in Australia are aware of the ubiquitous surveillance and also what are the tools of resistance they are currently adopting. We are also here to launch our survey, Journalists Between Big Data and Cybersecurity, as you can see from the screensaver. The survey aims at a deep understanding of current practices of resistance by journalists, and also aim at understanding their knowledge of the legal frameworks and digital security tools at their disposal. So please, if you are a journalist, join the resistance. Participate in the survey and share it with your fellow journals. The more information we collect about these practices, the more we'll know how to support journalists in their activities. So think of it as an act of defiance, fight apathy, just do the survey, just do it. So I've given each speaker around um, 10 minutes for their speech, and after that I will ask um, each of them a question, and then we'll open to the Q&A. So, Paul, if you would like to start. Sure. Um, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I also really loved this sort of... Um, I feel like I had the, the quintessential Sydney University experience just then as like 200 jocks just charged out of the room at me. So I'm, I'm very glad to be here um, and I'm very glad to have had that phenomenal experience. Um, so I, I, um, I, I first started becoming interested in the issue of sec digital security for journalists when I was um, studying at university at UTS and, um, and, and so it was an area that I was sort of drawn to because it was fascinating and it seemed to me to be an area where there weren't really many discussions about it, not very, made of very many forums um, for those discussions. Um, and then I, um, it sort of shortly before I joined The Guardian, the Snowden um, disclosures happened and suddenly everyone was talking about this issue of surveillance and the issues around privacy. But um, what was becoming very clear and what I think um, certainly Alan Rushbidger has discussed um, in the past as well was how challenging all these organisations found it to be confronted with quite immeasurable um, evidence of... Um, quite extreme and invasive forms of mass and bulk surveillance. And um, it became very clear that this was a major structural problem 
in how people did journalism all around the world, really. Um, and so I decided to start writing about this particular issue in Australia and take it up a bit more because um, what also became clear was that our legal framework for these kind of issues is um, extremely lax and favourable towards law enforcement authorities. And, um, and I, I remember early in 2014, before the data retention amendments were put up, um, but when there were glimmers of this issue just starting to, um, to emerge from the early months of Tony Abbott's government, um, that I, I wrote a piece about this issue and how difficult it was to protect sources and how easy it was for police to access phone records or any agency, including the RSPCA or anyone like that. And, um, and I wrote this piece and at the end of it said that, um, you know, it seems really bizarre that news organisations are still soliciting confidential tips um, through email. Um, so there were, even at that time in 2014, news organisations in Australia that were saying... Oh, you can email us confidentially and securely at this particular email address. Um, and I was actually attacked on Twitter by some journalists um, for saying that that wasn't secure and that that was, um, you know, like me, just being a kind of snarky competitor um, at the time. And I just found that completely astonishing that there was that lack of knowledge about the risks involved in journalism and the capability of law enforcement agencies and the digital surveillance they could conduct, even after the Snowden revelations had really happened. Um, and then, I guess, what also became clear to me was that police were quite regularly, and, and it's been known for a while, that police had quite regularly investigated um, journalist stories with a view to finding their sources. Um, and so I sort of tried to take this up as a particular focal point for reporting um, because the police are a, a powerful institution, um, law enforcement agencies are, are a powerful institution, and I, I think there are some pretty legitimate and strong questions about why they are doing these investigations, what the public interest is in them, and how they engage in them. And um, what I started doing was kind of a lot of very targeted FOIs and requests under the Privacy Act to try to find out what kind of investigations were taking place. Um, and over the course of about two years, um, it eventually um, transpired and, and only emerged because um, the federal police sort of accidentally told me about it, that... Um, that they had also accessed my phone records in, in the course of um, one of those police investigations. Um, so I guess that was a pretty... Even though it was something that I had um, suspected would happen um, and I'd certainly taken a whole range of precautions to prevent those risks, um, the risks of that access from... Um, impacting on any sources. It's still a pretty shocking thing to realise that your phone and email records have been trawled through by some random police officer. Um, and also the kind of collateral intrusions that that brings into your personal life as well. Um, I mean, it's not like they were saying, oh, well, that's, you know, 
we know that number must be personal. I mean, they would have no way of distinguishing between um, potential sources that I was talking to or potential personal contacts. Um, you know, I have plenty of friends in government, in um, all kinds of different roles. And it was pretty uncomfortable thinking how that could have impacted on, on them as well. Um, and unfortunately, the most concerning thing about this is that um, my case was in no way unique at all. Um, and this has most certainly been happening to journalists in Australia for a very, very long time. Um, I guess the only difference is was that um, I just decided to sort of prod and push a little bit to um, see what would happen when I, when I did. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the moral to that story is never underestimate the incompetence of government because you absolutely never know what you will discover. Um, and in that instance, it was the, you know, that this, this failure to um, uh, manage this particular process is what led to them making this admission that um, they'd access my phone records. Um, so these, these clearly are risks, they are risks for, for journalists, but journalists are very much a protected species in, in all of this um, that you did sort of touch on, really, and, and that's why journalists secured amendments under, um, under, um, under the metadata laws, but certainly nobody else has. Um, and while there are certainly risks to professional journalists, really the, the people who face the most Serious risks are whistleblowers um, and people who are in kind of more non-traditional journalism roles. Um, and they are most often in Australia the ones who really face those ramifications. Um, so I think it's, it's critical that all journalists understand these risks and know how to navigate them. Um, because if they don't, people you know that they talk to could very well be jailed or could face some very very serious consequences. Um, so it is absolutely the most fundamental and important obligation on anyone who's a working journalist to be able to deal with that. Um, but I mean, unfortunately, the I, I think the issue is that that surveillance is. Um, very much something that is real. It's it's happening to journalists um, all the time, and it's very hard to know how often it's happening. But there is so much that can be done to um, make the way you practice journalism better and more effective, um, and to be able to do really big journalism projects and um, still be able to protect your sources as well. Um, and I think I might leave it there on that note. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. I think we can. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Julie. So I have a PowerPoint, of course, because yeah. can't escape being an academic. Um. So hi, everybody. Thanks for um, your patience. I too enjoyed the great display of jock straps <laughs> on my way in. Um, something about power and resistance symbolised there, I think. <laughs> Um, so my name's Julie Pizzetti. I'm um, an academic and journalist. I'm currently with Fairfax Media, um, where I've been doing um, some training, actually, in this space, um, trying to particularly focus on investigative journalists, but also to extend awareness um, across the board when it comes to a basic level of digital security. But I'm, I'm here, I think, <laughs> tonight uh, because I authored um, and led the research on a, on a huge study, and I, I mean huge, um, for UNESCO, 
um, while I was working with the World Editors Forum and the World Association of News Publishers in Paris um, in 2014 and 2015. It's huge in scope. We looked at 121 countries. Um, we interviewed over 50 um, experts in the field, um, editors-in-chief like Alan Rusbridger, who was still at the helm of The Guardian, um, and uh, Marty Barron at the Washington Post, um, and right through Latin America. We had um, editors from, from Asia um, and Africa as well in the mix, along with cybersecurity experts um, and media law experts as well and human rights defenders. We also did surveys, and I'm interested to talk to Benedetta in the course of this, um, much like Paul's experience of inviting people to participate in, a, in, a, in an email exchange about confidential information. We surveyed people in an online manner, which um, has its own inherent risks and, and caveats. So this is such a fascinating um, field, and I think we'll, we'll unpack some of that tonight. I understand we're using the metadata resist hashtag, so all of this is on the record. You'll be thrilled to hear it because it's being live streamed. Um, but please tweet along as well. Well, um, so I'm going to give you the headlines from this study that um, is called Protecting Journalism Sources in the Digital Age. And in case I forget to say it later, I will say it now. It's freely available online. It is free and freely available online for download. I've got two hard copies. Paul, can you just pick one up? Because I neglected to bring one over. <laughs> so the first two people down the front who want a ratty copy of um, this book, uh, feel free. We launched it on World Press Freedom Day in Jakarta. Um, and these are the headlines. So as, as Benedetta, I think, and Paul have already alluded to, we have a, a global crisis, really, when it comes to the legal frameworks where they do exist in relation to source protection, um, effectively being eroded at every level. Um, we also see restrictions and compromises, and these represent really significant challenges to the twin rights. They interact, freedom of expression and the right to privacy. Um, we also have found that those threats represent a very real, very significant and frankly under-recognised challenge to investigative journalism. So what we've found is that there's a need to, to strengthen those laws and in many countries we have to understand that there are no such legal frameworks so we're suggesting strongly that there need to be. We're not saying they're obsolete but we are saying that many different methods need to be adopted to um, work with the legal frameworks where they do exist. Really important finding, this is a UN body, UNESCO, um, and one of the findings if, of this study is that acts of journalism, broadly speaking, should be shielded from targeted surveillance and data retention and the handover of material by third-party intermediaries that's connected to confidential sources. Easier said than done, but nevertheless, it's good to have that recognised for the profession. So... As I said, we looked at 121 countries, 69% or 84 of those UNESCO member states over a 10-year period, which was the era we were examining from 2007, almost 10 years, to the end of 2015. Um, we found that mainly with negative development, there were a range of changes that um, occurred almost, not uniformly, but almost consistently around the world. So those issues, again, of mass and targeted surveillance, data retention, and another important theme that emerged, one of the, the key four themes, was the overreach of anti-terrorism and national security legislation. So that is happening with repetition around the world as a justification for overriding or undermining existing legal source protection frameworks. Um, we also found that there needs to be, as I said, a, a strengthening of those protections and limitations 
um, on those um, interventions. Transparency and accountability uh, are two words that are repeated um, frequently in this study because of the lack of transparency and accountability when it comes to the implementation of this sort of legislation, the metadata legislation, data retention legislation, uh, the application of secret courts to determine you know, which people can be put under targeted surveillance or which data can be accessed. Um, and you know, the reality is that in an environment of mass surveillance, which is what was revealed with Snowden, we're scooping up so much information that journalistic communications are being caught in the net. And one of the ways we can respond to that, and we're talking about that here, is to support anonymity and encryption that defends anonymity. Um, but we're seeing challenges in parallel with all of these developments to the very legitimacy of encryption um, as a human right. And David Kay, who's now the current UN Special Rapporteur um, on Freedom of Expression and the Right to Opinion um, at uh, the UN, has said that he sees that as one of the biggest challenges that we face, that the ongoing threat to anonymity and encryption and people's right to defend their communications through those measures. That said, that you know, these systems are flawed, they're not foolproof, um, and as many of the journalists um, I interviewed and my colleagues interviewed pointed out, um, you can also create a red flag situation by adopting encryption that sort of indicates you are possibly having a conversation um, that, that is worth investigating, which is one of the reasons why there is a mass movement um, towards um, adopting encryption more widely. So findings, again, and I think these are important, particularly for audience members here who are consumers of quality journalism, the journalists in the room, um, and for those of you who, who don't necessarily think um, in a critical way about um, the way journalism is, is produced, um, the risks are real. So if, if your investigations, your communications are compromised as a journalist with your sources, and significant proportion of sources, confidential sources, are whistleblowers, then you know, you're risking triggering cover-ups. Um, in some settings internationally, you're not just risking the employment of the source or the jailing of the source, you're risking the death of the source. That's a legitimate, genuine risk in many countries around the world, particularly in Latin America, particularly in parts of Africa, and particularly in the Middle East. Um, and you also um, are in a situation where if your information is compromised, your sources are unlikely to have faith in your processes, in your journalism. The sources of information ultimately run dry. And self-censorship is also a real possibility. And that was borne out um, in many of the interviews and surveys that we did um, and the digital research that we did. So I'm not going to go through this, but um, one of the outcomes of the study was a model framework, an 11-point framework that we developed, which we're encouraging um, activists, journalists, states around the world to examine their own legal source protection frameworks against as a means of highlighting where the gaps are, where the risks are, and to perhaps begin um, a campaign to try to address some of those gaps and risks. And there are very many of them in Australia as one of the you know, major um, uh, members of the Five Eyes uh, network, for example. So there's an 11-point plan which is worth investigating. So what does this mean for journalists and newsrooms, for those of you who are um, involved in the practice of journalism and interested in this space? Um, three main impacts that practice is being altered. We found that around the world, 
gradually, perhaps not with the speed that you might hope given the level of risk. Journalists, editors, um, newsroom managers are slowly adapting their processes and their reporting methods. We heard examples um, from Argentina, for example, at La Nación um, National Daily Newspaper where the editor-in-chief was sending his investigative reporter down a dirt road for three hours to meet a source and the return trip for three hours on the way back um, as a means of trying to escape detection, which increases as a risk on a daily basis. Um, Alan Rusbridger talked, talked about um, feeling like he was constantly in a zombie war, you know, just as you'd kill one zombie, another one would arrive in terms of the level and repetitious nature of the threats. Um, we're also seeing impacts on training and resources and resourcing. Um, it, it takes money, whether that's in terms of um, training, whether it's in terms of legal advice, which has to be escalated in response to the kinds of risks that we're encountering in reference to investigative journalism, um, or whether it's just in terms of ensuring um, that the equipment is available uh, for journalists working on the high-end risk projects, air-gapped computers, um, uh, cases for phones um, to, to prevent detection, that kind of thing. And the third point is that um, action is required. Um, that's on the part of news, newsroom managers, it's on the part of individual journalists, it's on the part also of reporters in terms of the way they respond. So they're adapting their practices um, and we have those risks to encryption and anonymity that undermine those efforts at adaptation. Um, just a few quotes, and you can find these in the book and in various articles written about the study, um, but to draw your attention to how, how serious this is and um, the fact that it is, it, it is a global risk. Um, Jared Ryle, who's an Australian-Irish journalist who um, is the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, I think sums it up best when he says, you just have to assume that everything that you do now is being recorded and traced. He says that um, not to... <coughs> raise fear so much, but to give practical advice about a mode of operation that's now necessary um, because of these, of these risks. Um, we also have Marty Barron talking there about um, the way in which these issues have permeated not just national security reporting at the pointy end of investigative journalism um, where these risks occur, but also right down to sort of local government reporting you know, where you've got the chilling effect in terms of people being so concerned that their employer, whether it's the government or a corporation, uh, you know, phones are being tapped, ID cards when they're swiped, you know, data is being recorded and um, all sorts of patterns are being devised to identify whistleblowers and leakers. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, escalating again in the, the Trump White House in the US. So um, Snowden opened a massive can of worms and now we're trying to respond to, in ways, in creative ways, to deal with this. But again, I'd say, um, based on research and experience, not at, not at the speed or at the level that I think we need to. Um, so there's costs. There's also the need to educate um, journalists. And there's a need, um, we found in this study, for journalists to consider training their sources in the methods, um, the more secure methods of contact and information sharing. That could involve a secure Dropbox, although they're quite clunky to use and, you know, you're not going to get 15 drops a day um, on a secure Dropbox for your sources to access and your sources who access it must have appropriate tech skills um, to be able to do that. One of the areas of greatest exposure is when a source first makes contact with a journalist. They expose themselves. And so that is a real risk 
for them and also for you. Um, I know journalists, um, very senior, um, high-impact journalists who have abandoned what they described as mid-level stories because of concerns about um, the person having already exposed themselves uh, as a result of using a work email, for example. So we're also um, recommending that journalists and the, the media industry broadly engage with these issues um, in, a, in, a, in a campaigning way um, as, as a, a set of fundamental issues when it comes to protecting media freedom and freedom of expression um, internationally. We need to ensure this uh, happens so that journalists, sources, whistleblowers, citizenry are broadly aware and the public needs to understand in order to um, become activists themselves in the defence of their privacy, um, to, needs to understand the importance of these processes to the, the, the practice of journalism and investigative journalism, accountability journalism in particular. So there's you know, creative journalism that can be done in this space and I think Paul is, um, you know, is a living speaking example over there of somebody who has really done that exceptionally well. Um, there are other journalists in other parts of the world who are doing similar work and I think that's to be applauded and, and hopefully um, expanded. So that's all I want to say up front. Um, but some conversations on the hashtag protect sources. You'll find me on Signal if you do want to um, connect with me and just pro tip. It's certainly the, the app that I find to be the most user friendly of the secure apps um, and look forward to talking to you afterwards. Thank you. Hi everyone. Uh, my name is Gabor Satmari and uh, I'm uh, from uh, Crypto Australia. Uh, so Crypto Australia is a not-for-profit organization mainly operating in Sydney and we are all about running uh, interesting talks and workshops revolving around privacy and security in Sydney and Melbourne and if everything goes well we are launching in Brisbane and Tasmania uh, very soon. Uh, so on our workshops uh, everyone can come along and learn more about uh, very hands-on and practical stuff. Uh, it started, this whole thing started in uh, 2015 when I was living abroad and uh, I was a member of the local crypto party community. And I remember those, uh, uh, I, I remember that the community was just fantastic. We ended up in the pub after each event and uh, we ended up home around 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. And when I moved to Sydney, uh, I was kind of missing this, uh, the, this community and I thought, uh, uh, I would uh, establish or revive the crypto party here in uh, Sydney. Uh, so I started the crypto party here in, uh, in Sydney last year, and uh, it quickly evolved uh, to something more. Uh, after a few events, uh, we uh, added some variety to the event, so people could learn how they could write and submit freedom of information requests, or they could uh, listen to a talk of someone uh, who was a victim of identity theft and uh, uh, our guests could uh, listen to his personal story. And as the community grew, uh, we realized, me, uh, a few friends of mine, and I realized that uh, there are some limitations uh, of these events. Uh, as uh, there are special groups, such as lawyers, doctors, journalists, uh, human rights activists who need uh, uh, special help and special training uh, on top of the, the general uh, topics. So a few friends of mine and I uh, established Crypto Australia and uh, bring 
the events to the next level, and we, we bring the events to, to more cities uh, uh, other than Sydney. Uh, so one, one result of the efforts uh, was a few uh, workshops uh, for journalists along with the, the, the Walkley Foundation last year and this year. Uh, it, was a, it was a special workshop where the content was uh, tailored specifically for, uh, for journalists. And uh, you also brought uh, an interesting uh, uh, capture the flag game where the players could, uh, uh, the players are playing as a as a uh, data analyst working for the federal police, and they could learn how uh, applying how big data techniques or how applying big data techniques to to uh, metadata uh, can uh, uh, link the journalist and the and the information source together. Uh, so if uh, yeah, if you are interested in uh, our event, uh, our next speaker is going to be uh, Julie Pozzetti <laughs> next, uh, next month. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I brought uh, some slides uh, uh, today. Maybe I can, uh, I can talk about it. It was a very interesting case uh, uh, recently, uh, uh, back, from, uh, back from June. Um, So you yeah, have the main takeaway of the of the workshops and the and the games. So yeah, three very simple things. Uh, I was on the Green Talk uh, uh, Sunday, and uh, it was very interesting. He was advocating for uh, for uh, for journalist learning digital security and and privacy. He essentially said that he can't take journalists seriously who can't information sources in the digital age. Uh, and because of the laws and regulations are, uh, uh, are not providing the necessary support uh, to protect the, uh, protect the sources, uh, it's that uh, the journalists need to be at the ball, uh, ball of encryption uh, along, around them and uh, the information source protect their identity. So, uh, as you can see, there are three simple, kind of three simple uh, things that uh, uh, we are trying to uh, each on the event. So, first of all, everything, metadata, and, uh, yeah, rule number three. <laughs> I brought a few examples. Uh, so, don't be idiot. Figure one. Uh, so. If you are blurring someone faces out, then make sure that uh, you blur out in the next uh, scene. Or if, if uh, your info source is asking you. <laughs> or, yeah, even uh, newspaper stuff up uh, from time to time. So, New York Times was uh, at the simple black rectangles to PDF, to PDF documents uh, before publishing them and uh, yeah, by just uh, uh, selecting the text within the PDF file, it uh, uh, reveal uh, the redacted text. Uh, so yeah, metadata. Uh, 
I wrote an example which, uh, which happened uh, just uh, in, back in June uh, this year. So Reality Winner was a, a, a whistleblower who was leaking uh, documents from, NS, from the NSA. Uh, and it was uh, proving, or it was trying to prove that uh, the Russians were behind, the, behind the, uh, uh, manipulating the elections in the, in the States. And uh, yeah, she was caught about a week later. And uh, there were lots of, lots of speculation how it happened, but uh, uh, one security researcher found later on the, the solution, what, uh, what was that? So this was the original story, how The Intercept uh, published it uh, back in, uh, in, in June. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the content of the article uh, was. It's more interesting now how Reality Winner was uh, caught. So in, within the article, uh, there were excerpts uh, published from, from the leaked document. And also the whole document was uploaded to Document Cloud. So those who are not familiar with Document Cloud, it's a kind of Dropbox-like service which can uh, uh, preview uh, or which can uh, display the document as they are, and uh, uh, journalists typically use it to embed into the articles. Is it still working? So journalists, uh, uh, journalists uh, use uh, Document Cloud because uh, uh, if uh, a document is published through Document Cloud, it removes uh, metadata, for example, from the documents. So just like with, uh, just like with, for example, uh, JPEG files that you, uh, when you when you are taking photos uh, uh, with your phone, uh, also in PDFs there are lots of metadata embedded in the files, such as the name of the computer where the file was created on or the name of the author, uh, timestamp, and so on. So Document Cloud all uh, takes care of it and, and uh, uh, removes these uh, sensitive details. So if it was, if it was yeah, this was the process. So uh, Reality Winner was uh, printing out this sensitive document uh, at NSA in, in, uh, in the office. He, uh, she handed over the document to the intercept. Uh, they rescanned the document uh, with, the, with the photocopier, and then uh, the document was published on uh, Document Cloud. So where, where, it, where did it go wrong? So I don't know if, if you know, but uh, uh, if you have a laser printer or a photocopier, I have a bad news for you. So because uh, of uh, some weird regulations from a decade or two decades ago, uh, every and to prevent uh, con uh, counterfeit uh, money counterfeiting and uh, piracy, every laser printer uh, prints uh, invisible or almost invisible uh, small dots uh, onto the paper. Uh, it's barely visible; they are very tiny, but uh, ninety something, almost hundred percent of the devices are uh, printing uh, these dots on uh, on these documents. So the document looked look like, look like uh, this uh, to the casual observer. However, uh, with some basic image manipulation, uh, this, is, this was mine uh, uh, 
uh, I, I changed a few things on the on the from the screenshots. So uh, uh, basic image manipulation uh, uh, reveals these uh, hidden uh, dots uh, within the document. So this, these dots were embedded on the on the physical on the, on the paper. It was printed on the actual paper. And uh, EFF published a, a, a guide uh, years ago. So if you arrange these dots uh, uh, in the right order on, on this website, it, uh, uh, they managed to decode how these uh, dots work. So uh, when you uh, uh, selected the, or when you, when you replicated the correct order on this website, uh, you could uh, reveal uh, the, uh, the following details. So that document from the intercept site was printed on this, uh, on this printer with the serial number and, and on this date. So by the NSA knowing on which device was uh, the document printed on and around when, uh, they could narrow down uh, on a small circle of suspects. Uh, uh, and yeah, ultimately, they could uh, identify the, the whistleblower. So, how can we prevent this? Uh, and this is one of the one of the uh, tools that we were covering on on the uh, trainings. So, PDF redact tools is actually developed by uh, a journalist at the Intercept. Uh, we uh, ex expanded it uh, a little bit to. Uh, to uh, add, the, add this additional feature of uh, removing the microdots. So if you are a journalist, I highly recommend to, to use or have a look on this tool. Uh, what it does, essentially, it uh, takes a PDF file, it converts them into images, uh, it removes uh, heaps of things from these files, and it uh, reassembles uh, the file back to, a, uh, back to a PDF. However, all of the metadata and, uh, and the active content is removed. And with the new feature, uh, the document is converted into monochrome, which uh, makes the dots disappear. So it's, uh, this is the document after, uh, after the treatment. Uh, these are just uh, artifacts on the document because, uh, uh, because it's converted to monochrome, but the dots from the top uh, have disappeared. And some self-promotion. <laughs> Uh, so the key takeaway is that there are a few good practices that we suggest for every journalist to follow. So yeah, first of all is, is uh, the metadata in the files. Secondly, metadata around the communication. So uh, uh, for certain journalists or in certain cases, even the linkage between the journalist and the, and the information source uh, is too much. Uh, it's, too, uh, it's too much to reveal. So even if you use, for example, Signal, uh, because of the metadata retention uh, uh, laws uh, and data correlation, it's possible to, uh, to uh, link the journalists and the information source together. So uh, there are specialized, special tools, uh, such as uh, Ricochet and OnionShare, that operate over the Tor network. And essentially, it's a, uh, these tools will not uh, uh, leave the metadata trace behind. Uh, also, Signal is, is a good uh, is a is a tool uh, recommended to to use. 
if uh, metadata is not a concern. And as uh, Julie mentioned, uh, a secure drop or global leaks, uh, I, I wish more media outlets would, uh, would use them because uh, it's just uh, so simple to, to use. So, okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gabo. So, I'm very keen to open the debate, and I, I'm, I have a question for Julie. Let's start with you, actually. Um, you, um, you explain in the report, um, in the findings of the report, that journalists uh, partially uh, alter their practices, you know, to respond yeah. to metadata laws and uh, digital surveillance. And I was wondering if you found in the report anything that, um, for example, especially from the cases in Asia Pacific or the cases in Latin America, where you know journalists have been exposed to, you know, more despotic environments, if we want to call them yeah. like this, um, throughout the years. And if there are practices or routines that you think could help Western journalists that are now having to cope with a new scenarios, in sure. other words, can we learn from them? Yes, um, I think we can, although many of the journalists and editors um, we interviewed in Latin America and the Arab states, um, for example, and parts of Asia, um, point out that... Uh, that their states, in many cases, are not as advanced as, say, the Five Eyes countries. So we face greater risk when it comes to our information being intercepted in the US, Canada, New Zealand and Australia um, than you do in, in certain African states where the consequences of interception are far greater because of the despotic nature of the governments. Um, but I think, so I think that's an important point to make. But what, what many of the journalists um, highlighted, and we heard over and over again around the world, and that is a reversion to what we're calling analogue methods. People literally talked about going back to dark car parks, you know, a la all the president's men, um, flags in pot plants, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like really uh, basic measures to try to avoid detection. However, some of the Latin American journalists pointed out, particularly, say, in Colombia, where um, it was revealed, um, I think, in, I want to say, 2012. I've got 121 countries' data in my head. You'll have to fact-check me. Um, the National Security Agency, DAS, was disbanded, and its head and deputy were jailed uh, because of the abuse of um, surveillance um, targeting journalists and judges, for example. So, so to, that's a counterpoint to what I was saying before. They're, they're becoming more um, agile uh, in the way that the, the, the states and the corporations, and as the, as the technology becomes easier to access and easier to deploy. But those journalists um, made the point that you can revert to analogue methods, but you have to be smart about that, because in states like Colombia, um, facial recognition software for example, is, is a thing. Um, the Internet of Things is, is a reality, and, and with it comes increasing risk. So hence the editor of La Nation telling his reporter to drive on back roads to avoid um, various detection points en route where data is captured, so whether that be you know, cameras, uh, roadside cameras, for example. Just, just another really useful tip um, that I think is worth sharing, and it's really obvious when you think about it, but stretching timelines between contact with your source and publication um, is a really uh, useful thing to consider. I mean, many journalists will say they are reluctant to talk publicly about the methods that they deploy um, because they need to be able to protect their sources, 
but I think there are certain techniques, including that one, which are universally um, available are that, are, yeah, that, are, that are useful. And I think that's why it's great that you're doing what, what you're doing, trying to map those. No, but it's also great, of, obviously, to learn from this report that is major because, you know, you've been interviewing so many journalists, really, yeah. all around the world. But actually, um, one of the um, most um, interesting comments that was made by a Pulitzer Prize winner in New York to me was, um, oh, well, I don't bother with digital security because that doesn't work at all. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I... I that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that came across... I don't know, Gabor, probably want to comment on this because did, it come, did you come across these comments a lot? There was a lot of resistance to the resistance in a way. Yes. So we don't want to adopt digital tools because we don't believe in them. So, yeah, uh, I can reflect to that and maybe I have a question for Julie afterwards. So... Uh, uh, I'm working in information security and I'm visiting heaps of security conferences and uh, I kind of sense uh, a power disparity between, uh, between uh, uh, the offensive side of, side of security and uh, uh, the general public or journalists. So on one hand we have journalists with, uh, with a varying level of technical skills and technical knowledge. However, on the other side, uh, governments are building up their offensive capabilities they are uh, uh, advertising jobs on uh, security conferences uh, uh, openly with, with slogans like, uh, if you join us, you have the license to hack. Also, if you watched uh, Four Corners a few weeks ago uh, uh, about cyber weapons, uh, companies like BAE are producing uh, uh, tools that can hack computers and, uh, and uh, smartphones remotely. So because of this power disparity, I hear and, uh, and also I think as well that uh, it's, uh, it, it makes sense to go back to the basics and, uh, and to leave the phone home, leave the, leave the electronic devices home and just take a plastic notebook with a uh, pen or paper. Um, so how do you deal with the first contact problem? Because yeah. that is really major for every investigative journalist. And Mm -hmm. mm. I, I don't think it was ever solved properly. Probably the best solution out there, or, or one of the most viable solutions out there, is a secure drop uh, or, or GlobalX. Mm -hmm. uh, it's relatively easy to use for, a, for an information source to, to uh, send a message over it. You just need a Tor browser. Uh, the problem is typically within the others, on the other side. It's a, especially with secure drop. It's a, uh, slightly, it's a bit complicated to set up and operate and do it right, but uh, it's not perfect. But probably, yeah, a service like Securedrop or GlobalX uh, could could solve the first contact problem. So, Paul, have you found uh, a lot of resistance in your experience in newsroom uh, with technology, like meeting old reporters that still don't believe that digital security can help at all? Because um, if we ask Snowden, you know, that is the solution mm -hmm. to. Uh, to this issue. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, as, you, as you pointed out, I'm a senior reporter, so that should give you an idea of the <laughs> age, general age of people in the newsrooms that I've worked at. Um, so so, so in, in, in some respects, actually, no, I haven't encountered that, but, but that it genuinely is because um, I haven't had to deal with many older journalists. But when I sort of am, you know, out socially, I've definitely heard those kind of comments made um, and a sort of you know, almost kind of willful or gleeful misunderstanding of the the nature and purpose of some of those tools. You know, it's like when you have those conversations, like, with your dad about how to use the iPhone, like, how to, or, you know, how to set up Netflix, or, like, my dad once asked me how to torrent something, and it was like he really relished in 
his complete lack of understanding of it. Um, and I think you see those same kind of remarks. And I'm sure Julie probably has many anecdotes about this as well. Um, you definitely do kind of come across those sort of attitudes in um, uh, among the older generation. But 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 I think that is um, that just does reflect the broader technical gap in. Um, in, in skills that you have um, with people who have not grown up with computers since they were, you know, since they were kids. Um, and that, you know, it, for, I, I hope that will become increasingly less of a problem um, because, you know, everyone sort of under the age of 30 is, is used to um, kind of iteratively engaging with different forms of computers um, and different forms of technology. And, and that gives us a really sort of innate advantage um, in this sort of area. Can I just counter that though and, and say that one of the things that that does though, um, that, that kind of immersion from a very young age in social for example, where you're a nature That's true, user, yeah. mm. it's very public, it's sort of, mm. you know, it's always on and it's public and so I've had young, young journalists, not yeah. at Fairfax I have to say, but, and having taught journalism for 10 years um, as well who will, you know, geotag themselves in all manner of situations. I had one student journalist doing um, a story for publication on biker gangs and, you know, was gleefully sharing on social the, um, you know, in a public manner, <laughs> the trajectory. I've heard a pretty disturbing story recently about an older journalist in, um, in a war zone who was checking in on Facebook. Um, yeah, so you know th this is this is journalism safety more broadly rather than specifically source protection. But I think we do have a challenge at both ends of the spectrum, um, like when, when it comes to awareness, and it's that bravado that you are getting at mm. that um, you know that sort of journalistic camaraderie. You know, you, it, it gets back to that idea of we're in the trenches. You know, we brush it off. We pick. You know, everybody's wearing a you know a tinfoil hat if they bang on about security. You know. So I think we still have to do a bit of work yeah. on, that, on that front. But what worries me, um, especially with some of the interviews that I've done in the US, um, is the lack of care for sources. Have you yeah. found that in your report as well? Um, I, I found a mix. Well, we've, we interviewed a lot of people, but we found a, um, a mix of responses. Um, one of the conclusions that... We didn't publish this as a finding of the study, but we concluded independently, based on the evidence, that, um, that there's an, a real ethical challenge here. That if you have a fundamental ethical commitment to protect your sources, then you may actually have to acknowledge that it's becoming nearly impossible to do so with all of these interventions. And that then um, requires you to think very critically about you know, your, your ethical practices. So we interviewed, most of the people we interviewed were people who were genuinely passionate about the capacity to continue to do investigative journalism based on confidential sources. But um, one or two who we encountered, and we had 150-odd survey respondents as well, were, um, were of, yeah, of the view that it's the content that trumps the rights of the source. Um, and I think... That's, you know, that's so, so it's the outcome. The risk is worth the outcome if it changes policy. And I think, so I think we have, you know, some deep conversations yet to come in, um, in journalism, particularly in our kind of um, Western model of journalism that that's, has this kind of source confidentiality at, at its core. Absolutely. So we'll um, open up to questions now. Um, I suggest that we probably use the um, yeah, microphone. <laughs> Thank you. So... 
And then if you have other questions, probably you... I'll just pass it around. Um, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, I think this is really interesting, and I think it is a big problem, the crackdown that we have on uh, sources on, um, on leakers. My question is, right now, I think one, uh, one of the things that you were touching on is reality winner and the Trump's administration. You touched on how they're uh, sort of upping the, the, um, the crackdown on these sources. My question was, and I'm sure you know that uh, a lot of people don't really know how their security is being infringed on. And I think that the reason that maybe that happened is because the media wasn't treating it with the gravity that it had to be treated with. And we talk about the Trump administration, but we know that by far the person that put most leakers in jail was Obama. Oh, yeah. Do you Although think- Although he's lucky to be Trumped. <laughs> right. I right, right. Um, my question is, do you think that the media failed in its role to be a little bit more investigative and take a stronger role in actually letting people know how this information was going to be used and the impact it was having? And do you think that that contributed to the legislation that has passed with very little opposition from the public that is now letting um, people be targeted this way? Julie, do you want to address? Sure. Unless Paul wants to say something no. first. No. Abs absolutely. Um, and that's what some of those findings that I flashed up earlier were getting at, the, the need for deep um, and, and investigative reporting. And I quoted Paul as one example of somebody who's doing that. Um, I don't want to hear it's not going to get traction. People are bored with this. They don't understand it, therefore they'll tune out. Um, I know we're, we're chasing sustainable business models for journalism, but this is at the core of sustainable journalism. That is the ability to have sources who can trust journalists, sources, whistleblowers who can trust systems to shed light on what powerful states or corporations want to remain hidden. And that sounds like just a trio of cliches, but, <laughs> but we ultimately... Um, have a responsibility, I believe, as a journalist um, and as a researcher, we have a responsibility to um, report vigorously in ways that allow citizens who are disconnected from these debates to appreciate. And we have upcoming debates on driver's licences that, that will be digital, on passports that are paperless. Um, you know, when it comes to big data, metadata, um, all manner of technologies, um, that will be used to infringe on our privacy. We need to be able to explain in an engaging way and in a high impact way with deep research below it what the um, likely outcomes are if we continue down this path. So I think that's a very important point. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to say as well, yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot more that, that we all could have done, um, particularly when the data retention laws passed. Al although I guess... What is important to know is that, in some respects, the situation even before the data retention amendments came into force was actually much worse um, in terms of the breadth of agencies that could access metadata um, without a warrant um, and in terms of the ease of access, certainly at least for journalists' metadata. But, um, but yeah, I, I do often wonder whether um, it's, it is a kind of constant battle to try to invent more ways to work out how to, to reach people. And that's something that I'm always kind of grappling with. Um, but, I mean, to, to illustrate an example of, you know, how some people certainly 
do not take this very seriously. I mean, one of the conversations that I remember having with a, um, a, a relatively, I guess, a relatively senior reporter in this case was um, um, not, not someone I worked with. Yes, like they were like, <laughs> they were like 25 or something. Um, they, um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was someone that I had sort of um, stumbled across at a, at a dinner or, a, or a, a pub event or something like that. And um, they asked me why I kept reporting on all this metadata stuff and all this source protection stuff. And I'm like, don't you realise, mate, you're just going to, you know, all your sources are going to get scared off about coming to you. Um, and there was this kind of fascinating level of self-interest mm. in, um, in reporting on this kind of issue as, it, as a discreet and important um, way of holding people in power to account um, in favour of this kind of greater imperative to get stories and, and get scoops. Um, and to be honest, I'm sure that doing that reporting probably has scared off some people from talking to me, and that's, that's fine. Um, but I'd rather they you know, should be aware of those risks than just be kind of willfully... Um, or you know, just be kind of unaware of um, what what some of the risks are um, in taking those kind of steps to approach me. Did you want to? Yeah, yeah. yeah just one comment on uh, on uh, Julie's uh, thing. You, you mentioned we need to find a model for uh, uh, for a sustainable investigative journalism. Uh, Greenwald has an answer. He said, "All you need just to find a billionaire to find your <laughs> yeah. Find your new anyone? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> yes." There could be a solution because actually one of my findings, um, even in London, was uh, uh, we can't really do this, we can't really implement all the changes, we can't really train journalists in the newsroom because it's too expensive. So this is actually one of the most uh, common answers mm. I received. So my response to that is yes, but if you know if you can actually leverage some of this knowledge and you can normalise some of these practices, which are not necessarily my response, and expensive. Yeah. And my yeah. response was also like, why don't we circulate this kind of report? Why don't you circulate, you know, what you're doing yeah. with your website? Why don't we just circulate, you know, what the EFF is doing yeah. in the US and all around the world? The, the Center for the Bureau for Investigative Journalists uh, in London, you know, all these handbooks they are there and yeah. they cost really nothing. But for me, one of the most amazing findings has been to see that even in news room where there is an established digital, secu digital security person, um, the senior reporters seem not to know that Absolutely. it exists. So. This is common around the world where you'll have, like, you'll have digital security and you'll have um, the safety guy. That's usually a guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and they, they will not necessarily intersect. So yeah. one of the things that we've been we're trying to, to work on, and it's difficult, is integrating those areas so that there's, you know, you've got editorial, yes. then you've got secure, digital security, and then you've also got safety because all of those things intertwine. And that's, that's it's remarkable how, how, how few <laughs> um, news organisations have, have approached things that way. Yeah. yeah. And the other problem I, I found uh, uh, when I was uh, developing these workshops, uh, especially a few years ago, that uh, all of the digital security guides and privacy guides are, are very generic. These are not uh, uh, tailored uh, to, to journalists or, mm. or to, the, to the specific audience. So their knowledge is very broad, but not, you know, they don't have probably mm. the, the specific know-how to address the issues of journalists. Mm. Now they're worried mm. about hacks rather than yeah. being worried about the implications to their content. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so on this note, I would like to give you the last, the last chance to, for a final remark, if you wish. And, um, and we're going to... We're going to be closing um, now, and uh, in the hope that uh, you know our resistance to what's happening uh, will lead to some change. But please, you know, if you can, do the survey. So 
Gabor, if you want to. Uh, a bit of else. someone else. <laughs> no hope from you. Okay, Julie. Uh, okay, um, just in the local context, I want to see these issues reported um, in, in a way that gets traction in the Daily Telegraph equally to the, the Guardian or the Sydney Morning Herald or BuzzFeed. I want to see popular uprising around these issues. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, and particularly if you're, you know, a, a student as well, which I, I think I would imagine some of you are, but also if you're not, um, just try, um, you know, go home tonight, go, go to the Freedom of the Press Foundation's website and start, have you look at some of these tools and start playing around with them. Um, you know, try to download Tails and put it on a computer or use PGP email or um, OGR chat or a mobile encryption app um, just because they're all really important things to learn about um, and particularly if you're a student journalist um, those kind of skills are as we're discussing there is a huge skill deficit in newsrooms about it so um, you should really know how to do it and uh, what I would like to see more in Australia is, uh, is uh, more media outlets uh, uh, using or offering SecureDrop or GlobalX. Mm -hmm. uh, Fairfax Media and The Guardian uh, uh, offers this service, but it would be great to see everywhere. And, and BuzzFeed. Just oh, yeah. BuzzFeed is BuzzFeed. And BuzzFeed, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if, uh, if uh, you, you can make the decision to have, uh, or, or, you know, someone who can make the decision to, to whether uh, deploy a SecureDrop service for, uh, for your outlet or not, uh, then I suggest to, to consider this option because uh, it just lowers the bar for uh, for uh, the, the future information sources uh, to to get in touch uh, with the right people uh, safely and securely. So. Yeah, it also solves the problem of the first contact, which is always a, a huge issue, even if you want to reverse to analog. So for sure, that's a, you know, a first step, yeah. um, which should, should be also quite easy you know, to achieve and not that costly either. So, Okay, so thank you so much. And, uh, thank you. And if anyone wants thank one you of our speakers. And, uh... Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.